And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. I'm going to devote this podcast to a number of Q&As. I'll try to make them brief, but uh, many of them require some explanation. So uh, uh, this could be a long podcast. I do want to take this time to briefly apologize uh, for getting behind on portfolio updates, on the Motif program, uh, uh, and 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 also and the 401k uh, updates that we are working on. All of these things are in progress. Uh, I am right now working very hard to prepare for a taping of some 23 to 5-minute basic uh, first-time investor uh, videos that hopefully will be used at Western as well as other universities. And obviously, uh, um, the hope is that you will be able to pass these on uh, to people who who need some help. So I apologize for being behind on so many projects. Uh, I'm still working, um, and uh, I want to get caught up, so uh, uh, bear with me. I've had a number of of really nice comments uh, from you. Chuck uh, was nice enough to say that he's been listening to me for years and uh, that the work has changed uh, his life and then in parens and my wealth, uh, as you have for so many. I listen to your podcasts as I run and you even improve my health as I seem to be able to relax and go further with your uh, soothing commentary. Uh, that's great, Chuck, because uh, uh, I have not been able to figure out how to uh, make exercising any more fun for me. Maybe I need somebody else's soothing commentary. Okay, to your question and comment. Uh, this is uh, referring to... Uh, a piece actually uh, uh, Jason Zweig uh, uh, wrote, uh, and I've gotten questions about it from a number of people. He says, no doubt you read Jason Zweig's thoughts on his quote, the number of stocks has halved over the last two decades to less than 3,000 from nearly 7,400 with most of the declines coming from the smallest companies, end quote. I would appreciate your thoughts on how you see this statistic affecting your methodologies, if at all. So that, uh, this is uh, an, an interesting uh, outcome, a number of reasons this has happened, partly because of Uh, private equity uh, funds uh, picking up or picking off, you might say, uh, a lot of those smaller companies and uh, uh, taking taking them private. Now, I looked at my own portfolio, and I've got a a big commitment to small cap value. Forget about small cap blend, just small cap value. Now, my portfolio has some 6,000 companies uh, in the small cap value arena, but that includes U.S. and international, and that's the developing countries internationally, as well as an emerging market value portfolio 
that has a lot of small cap emerging market value companies. And that's a lot of diversification. And if I look at the rest of my portfolio, there are way more than 12,000 different companies in the portfolio. So my sense is I'm not worrying about having enough companies available to be properly diversified. I'm not sure what the outcome of this will be and at what point somehow the trend might change to having more of these companies available, maybe when the private equity people decide to liquidate their positions back to the public, maybe that's when we'll see more companies uh, uh, available to, to, to invest in. But every time I hear one of these comments, it, it does remind me of how people perceive some major trend change by what's been happening recently I've, I've spoken about this before, but in the late 90s, the belief was that the value premium and the small cap premium were gone, and that uh, it was now time for growth and large cap uh, to, uh, uh, to, to, to do their thing, and that we shouldn't expect too much out of small cap and out of value. And the main reason that people said that was because the belief was that now, since everybody has discovered small cap and, and value, um, it's not likely that there'll be an additional premium uh, for those asset classes. What is fascinating to me, because I had a lot of people challenging my recommended portfolio, which was basically half in small cap and more than half in value. And then following that long run of large cap growth having the advantage, and by the way, it wasn't because small cap and value were not making any money, but they just weren't providing the premium that was expected. And then for the next 15 years, small cap and value blossomed just at the point that people said that those asset classes were not going to produce that premium small cap value, adding, uh, I think, over 5% a year for the, uh, for the following uh, uh, 15 years, uh, starting in 2000. So at this point, uh, I am certainly not concerned about there being enough companies available. Uh, I... I, I guess it's it's possible that uh, we'll see the value of the companies that are still there being bid up as people are positioning themselves more today than in the past, I think, in the small cap and the value asset classes. Uh, I'll, I'll probably talk later in this podcast about um, about the outperformance just recently, certainly, of large cap and uh, and even even growth, so you know there's that it 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 varies back and forth. What I'm concerned about is the next forty years. Now that's for long term investors, for young investors, certainly for people my age. I'm seventy three. Um, I don't have my portfolio all in small or all in value, although I have grandchildren who do. So. Uh, Kind of depends on what period of time a person is uh, 
planning for their portfolio to work for them. Here's a, an, another one uh, from uh, uh, Skip. Uh, Skip presents an interesting challenge. He says, when investment choices are sparse in one's 401k retirement plan, in general, what's more important, choosing low-cost, passively managed index funds or choosing options that achieve your recommended asset class diversification, even though some of those funds are actively managed and carry high expense ratios. Now, that's a tough one, because the minute we leave the index funds and move into the actively managed funds, it is more than just a matter of uh, the additional expense ratio that one is going to pay. You also have to look at the degree of diversification. If you're looking at a fund that may be called small cap, maybe it's not all that small. Maybe the average size company is larger than what we would normally think is small. Or if it's value, well, maybe it's a mix of of value and growth such that uh, the additional premium you're likely to get from that portfolio is not as high as one would expect. And then there's just the age-old problem that um, actively managed funds uh, tend to uh, underperform the index funds, not just because of the lower expenses, but because they simply own the wrong companies uh, that, that are going to outperform sufficiently to have taken the higher risk of the smaller asset class or the more deeply discounted value companies. So it, it, it is a dilemma. Now, I think when, when some fund, let's say a small cap fund that is a blend is charging one plus percent, I'm not sure that that fund uh, is is then worth the risk of all the other ways it could underperform, and you probably uh, would be better off um, in a S and P 500 with dirt, very cheap, cheap expenses. On the other hand, with small cap value, where there's an additional couple of percent potential uh, in those returns. Maybe there it might justify it if you were able to to buy it for uh, less than 90 basis points, for example. Uh, but that's even that is a hard call uh, because the range of returns of active management can be so broad. And as I've talked about before, it may be that really we have to go outside that 401k and take advantage of IRAs uh, in order to uh, pick up those other asset classes. Let's see if I have, uh, I think that's it there for that one. Then there is uh, a question here. Uh, in your podcast from July 5th, 2017, at around the 4920 mark, you mentioned that for the last 15-year period, the small cap value ETF 
has had a lower return than the small cap blend, uh, yet you seem to say in many past podcasts that small cap value is a preferable investment over small cap blend. Can you help me with that? I'm I'm sure I'm misunderstanding how the writer said. Well, um, maybe it was in my presentation that I confused things. First of all, yes, over the long run, and the long run uh, could be 20, 30, 40 years, we do expect small cap to do better than large. We do expect small cap value to do better than small cap blend. What we don't know is by how much. And in that that podcast that's being mentioned here, I quoted returns from DFA. And uh, for example, I just updated it, looked at it. When I look at the DFA small cap fund, uh, this I think is through July 7, 17, the compound rate of return was $10, I'm sorry, it was 10.51%. Now that average in that asset class was 9.04. So the first thing uh, I would note is, yes, the index or passively managed fund uh, did better than the average uh, small cap blend. By the way, the S&P 500 for that same period compounded at 8.36. So there's another thing as expected is the small cap blend did better than the large cap blend by over uh, 2%. Now, notice though, the difference between the S&P 500 and the average small cap blend fund was uh, less than 1%, about three quarters of, uh, of 1% difference. And if we look at the five-year, that was a 15-year look. Great lesson here for five years, the small cap blend compounded at 14.36 at DFA, the average at 12.53, big advantage again to DFA, but the S&P 500 compounded at 14.77. For the last five years, you were better off in the S&P 500 than you would have been in the small cap blend fund at DFA. But that's a very short period of time. Now, lots of numbers here, but let me now show uh, how DFA's small cap blend, uh, how how it did compared to the small cap value. Remember I said the small cap blend at DFA was 10.51. The DFA small cap value was 10.11. So there was about 40 basis points, 41 hundredths of 1% better return with the blend than with the small cap value. And that is what is a bit confusing to the writer wanting to know what's going on here. 
Uh, I thought that small cap value would do better than small cap blend. Well, there are periods. There are periods when the stocks that DFA decides they're going to go into their small cap value fund may not produce the returns of the small cap blend. But listen to this. The small cap value average performance of 9.25 was better than the average performance of the small cap blend funds of 9.04. So the average small cap value did better than the average small cap blend, but the DFA small cap value did underperform the DFA small cap blend. So, I mean, more numbers than you, you, you probably want to deal with. But here's the bottom line. That we do know that the DFA small cap blend uh, fund has an average size company of about $1.7 billion, As opposed to the small cap value of $1.5 billion. Over the long run, we would expect the smaller average size in the small cap value would produce a better return than in the small cap blend. But there's more. The price to book in the small cap blend at DFA is 1.92 compared to point. One seven in the small cap value. Uh, it, it's it's you know what is that a, a over a fifty percent um, um, lower um, value orientation in the small cap blend. So the long term should give the small cap value the advantage over small cap blend, but that didn't happen over the last 15 years, a short period of time. There is such a randomness. Remember when I talked about how Bogle started his his uh, S&P 500 index in 1977, and then until 1992 it compounded at over 16? And, and from... 2000 to 2017, it compounded at 4.5. So what's the lesson? Is the big premium of stocks over bonds, has it evaporated and is no longer expected? No, I think most people would say that the S&P 500 is expected to do better than bonds, even though for 17 years it didn't. That's one of the biggest frustrations that investors have is that things just don't always work out like they were supposed to. Here's a question from Jason. He's a young investor, I think, and he says, I am heavily tilted towards small cap value. However, I notice that from a market cap standpoint, the small cap value stocks only make up Three, uh, two to three percent of the total U.S. stock market. Should this be a concern? 
I know the history is great, but it seems like if it's only a small sliver of the U.S. market, that we may be putting a lot of our eggs into a smaller basket. Thanks for the insight. Well, Jason, you're right. The small cap value market in terms of cap weighting is very small. It's a lot of companies, but they are small in comparison to the giants, uh, the the largest 50 in the S&P 500. I think represent more than half of the value of all U.S. public stocks. And it is one of the challenges uh, that we have. We have lots of history, as you mentioned, that indicate if you are young and have many years on your side, that overweighting to small cap value uh, is, at least historically, a profitable And then, of course, if it works out as intended, uh, also a smart thing to do. The only problem is that we don't know how it's going to work out. So I think if you have a nervousness about that, uh, that we have to take that into consideration. I do not give personal advice. But if I were counseling somebody a young person, about building their portfolio, uh, typically it's a relatively small amount of money we're starting with in a portfolio. It's important. It's the foundation of, of what you're going to build. But the question is, are you better off, one, going into an all S&P 500 or a total market, or should you have a portfolio that includes all the equity asset classes, the big, the small, the value, the growth, etc.? Or should you be a combination of all value, large and small, U.S. and international? Or should you be an all small cap value portfolio when you're a young investor. And even then you have to make the decision as to whether you're going to have an all small cap value that is just U.S. or a combination of U.S. and international. And the fact is when a good advisor has a chance to kind of walk through and make sure you understand this, the implications of underperformance with any asset class. The question then is, does that advisor think you'll be able or want to deal with that? I mean, this year has been such a great example uh, of that difference that you can see in what appears to be the same asset class, but in the U.S. versus international. I just looked uh, uh, through, I think, July 7th, the U.S. small cap value uh, down one and a half. I'm looking at one that I know well, I hold in my portfolio. On the other, on the other hand, the international small cap value I own uh, is up 13.9%. Uh, through July 7th. And the emerging market value portfolio I have, and a lot of that is small cap, is up 17.3. So overall, I did okay for 
the first approximately uh, uh, six months. Uh, I, I might mention that when I look at the last 15 years, because I it's easy to check that at Morningstar when I'm looking at the year to date, I notice that the emerging market value fund that I own has compounded at 127 the international small cap value at 11.6, and the U.S. small cap value at 10.11. And I think it's another interesting lesson for us. This outperformance of the international small cap value probably had a big impact on that 15-year return difference. In other words, right now it's easy to see that U.S. small cap value is behind international small cap value, but six or seven months ago, it might have appeared the U.S. Uh, had a, a better track record. Here's an email from Jim. He says, Paul, you've changed my life, and I've helped several friends, and then in parens, and their parents, uh, close parens, uh, by sharing your philosophy not to mention my daughters. So, I have 1.2 million with Vanguard, all in your recommended low-cost funds and ETFs uh, with a 60-40 ratio. That 60 would be equities, the 40 would be bonds. On your distribution charts, based on past performance, I notice you add or subtract, as it were, a 1% financial advice fee per year. Question. Since my fees are closer to one-tenth of 1%, can I take out 5% a year but use the 4% chart? I think so many people have taken your advice in regard to the recommended Vanguard portfolio that this is an important topic. Makes sense? Thank you. And Jim, thank you. It's a great question. It's a very complicated answer. And it's not because you won't understand the answer, but there are so many forces, variables, that uh, go into to producing this, this final result on those uh, distribution tables. Let's remember... Those distribution tables were based on the 1970 through 2016 equity and fixed income uh, performance based on a, on a database that comes out of dimensional funds using their, uh, uh, their approach to building the different asset classes. So, for example... If you compared the DFA large cap value with the Vanguard large cap value, this is U.S., you would find a big difference in performance uh, due to DFA's average size company is smaller and DFA's are more discounted, deeper discounted value companies. And the same would be true if you looked at small cap value, and certainly there's a difference in emerging markets at, uh, at DFA uh, versus Vanguard. So 
the first thing that's important here is in my adding that 1% fee, I think, particularly in the equity portion of your portfolio, that, that, that the returns at Vanguard may be similar to the returns as uh, that you would have gotten in DF, at DFA after the fee. Which means, really, in an all-equity portfolio, uh, there really is not an advantage in not paying a fee at Vanguard, at least based on the past. So, I don't know. Now, yours is not all equities. You're 40% fixed income. And that has some impact. But what I have found in the past is that it's kind of a break-even DFA slash uh, uh, Vanguard right down to about 50-50 stocks and bonds. Certainly at 60-40, uh, I would say that the expected return after fees at DFA could be similar to the expected returns without fees at Vanguard. So no, I would not recommend you take out 5% a year instead of 4 uh, now, if you're if if you're using a a variable distribution, uh, then uh, that's an interesting question whether you could go to five. You know, at four percent, I would probably not be pushing for. Uh, I'm sorry, at million two, I don't know that I'd be pushing for more than taking out four percent. Because I'm assuming you're going to need the return that you get to, to to meet your cost of living. But once that account builds up to maybe a, a million five, maybe you could bump it up to 4.5 instead of four if, if, uh, if, if, if you want to be able to take a little more. And maybe when it gets up to a million seven fifty, you might be able to take out five percent instead of four and be okay. Really important in a case where you're kind of on the cusp of wanting to take out five, uh, but uh, not wanting to take maybe the risk that you need to take out five. Uh, my sense is you might want to run your portfolio by somebody who knows how to analyze that just by the hour to see in your situation where it, whether it warrants taking out 5%. Lester uh, asks a question here about the motifs. He says, do you have an estimated date when the additional motifs will be available? What types of motifs will they be? Uh, and then he has also a question, target date type motifs? Well, in fact, virtually all the additional motifs that we're about to, uh, about to introduce, probably by the end of August, uh, they are going to be target date motifs. But they are unlike any target date portfolio or fund, uh, certainly motif, uh, any that I've seen before. Uh, our view is, and I really tip my hat uh, uh, both to Chris Pedersen and Daryl Balls, 
the two analytical guys who've been working on this with me. Uh, they've just done amazing work, I think, and I'm very excited to introduce these portfolios because um, they have a way of presenting the expected rate of return, well, at least looking backwards, but and relation and a relationship a relationship with risk. Uh, and it starts showing a Vanguard target date portfolio versus a conservative, let's call it a Merriman motif, and then a, cons- and then a moderate Merriman motif. Again, target date portfolios. Then an aggressive uh, target date portfolio. And then I, one that I know will be of interest to a number of you, a very aggressive target date portfolio. Now, you may ask, wait a minute, who would want to have a target date portfolio that's very aggressive? Well, the reason that we decided to to have that be part of our lineup is because there are people who are putting lots of money into a target, maybe a target date fund uh, in their 401k. But they've also got a relatively small iris sitting over in their portfolio that they would like to be all equity all the time for the rest of their life, even though the, the balance than the majority of their portfolio will be much uh, more conservative. So we are trying to build these target date portfolios to meet the needs, not just of the kind of one fund answer for life, but also for those who need a one fund solution for a small part of the portfolio, but to have a, a more uh, aggressive position. So hopefully by the end of, uh, of August. My thanks to Randy for a couple of questions regarding the article about turning $3,000 into $50 million. And if you haven't read that article and you're thinking about doing something for a child or a or a grandchild, I hope you'll read that. Um, the, the basic idea is to save money at a very early age um, to be actually to build up to be available for when the child starts working. And instead of this additional money being focused on, on college, it's focused on being there to build the early years of a Roth IRA. And as you read the article, you'll see what an amazing difference this uh, this could be in terms of of giving a child or a grandchild a very long-term advantage. It's not being built for them to blow on a new car when they turn 25. It's it's really thinking about what it could do over a 40-plus period of time uh, to retirement and then even into retirement, even into retirement until death. So I hope you'll read that article. Anyhow, Randy asks the question, Is a UGMA, that's a Uniform Gift to Minors Act uh, account, the preferred account for the initial $3,000 for a two-year-old? Actually, when you put that into a UGMA, legally it belongs to that child when they reach the age of majority. And theoretically, if you wanted to change 
the nature of that investment. You might even decide to cash it in to pay some bills for yourself. Well, you might do that, but it would be illegal (laughs) to do that. So if you keep it in your name instead of the name of the child, they don't have a right at age 18 to, to liquidate it and spend it. And uh, you would then have the ability to make sure that the money goes into the Roth IRA uh, at the time that they start earning some money. And hopefully you'll have time to educate them as to what you're trying to do. And, and, and for listeners who are saying, oh, well, I don't have $3,000, so this must not apply to me. If you actually put away $365 a year for 21 years, it has virtually the same theoretical value that that original $3,000 would have uh, over that 21 years. And then the second question that Randy asks, and he says, please confirm the recommended investment in VTWV. That's a Vanguard uh, uh, fund that is small cap value. There's another one, VIOV, VIOV, or VTWV. They're, they're, they're both good funds that uh, for the for the long term i think as they're both exchange traded funds and uh, they're both small cap value uh, and so i'm okay with either one of those he goes on to say i'm going to try this with my granddaughter starting immediately as she will be two years old june 26 well i'm sorry randy i'm late on that birthday but i hope that uh, that does help and then we have uh, harry has a question here he says i'm 46 and was laid off from microsoft a few months ago I kept my 401k in their plan. Because of this, I am limited to my investment choices choices to those offered by their plan. I, I know you did this. He's referring to having reviewed the Microsoft choices a couple of years ago. He says, I have a 450000 to invest for my future is this still a good asset mix for someone in my situation? Well, actually, uh, you, what you could do is you could move that money to Vanguard in, in an IRA. And you could build a portfolio that would be very low cost and give you access to more of the asset classes than Microsoft has uh, through Vanguard. Uh, You could also, to the extent that some part of this is going to be uh, in uh, in equities, maybe maybe all of it, I don't know. But I would would encourage you to see if you can uh, find a DFA advisor. I don't know whether you're in the Seattle area or you work for Microsoft somewhere else, but there are advisors who will work with a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars because I really think that with as much time as you have in the equity part of your portfolio for sure you could be working with DFA again uh, that would be in an IRA it would be rolled over from your 401k to an IRA 
And if you keep it segregated and don't mix it with any other IRA, I don't give tax advice, but it is my understanding and belief that at such a time as you worked for another company, for example, if you went to work for IBM, uh, they have a wonderful list of DFA funds that you can access uh, within the IBM plan. You would be able to uh, take that IRA that you had rolled over, roll it over into the IBM plan, and eliminate the fees that you're going to have to pay some advisor uh, to help you with the DFA uh, funds. Uh, here we have another question from Lou. He's talking about the Vanguard Emergency Fund Portfolio. He says, it used to contain a portion in the Vanguard Short-Term Investment Grade Fund. Somewhere along the line, you changed to the Vanguard Short-Term Corporate Bond Index Admiral Shares. I've been searching through your website to find out your rationale for making this change, but I haven't had any luck. Well, the reason that was changed from the short-term short-term investment grade fund, that fund had about a 20 basis point uh, expense ratio, one-fifth of one percent. Now, in the admiral shares, it's seven one hundred. So it's about two-thirds cheaper to use the admiral shares. But it's not the exact same fund. The uh, admiral uh, shares of this short-term corporate bond index uh, is corporate. And so it's just a little more risky. It pays more dividends or interest, but it comes out as dividends. Uh, and it takes just a little bit more risk. And so probably in the long run, you'll make more money lower expenses, uh, higher dividends, they all would tend to leave you with a little more money in your pocket. And then a question from another Paul. He says, uh, I know you're probably too busy to do this, but I thought I would ask anyway. I love all your podcasts. This most recent one, Flexible Retirement Distributions 2017 Update in particular. I found a flexible retirement distributions table on your site that looks at 6% distributions. Have you run the number in a table taking 7, 8, and 9% distributions? I'm wondering how those scenarios would work out. Um, by the way, Variable, for those of you who may not have read the articles, there's there's a fixed way to take out uh, those distributions. There's a variable way. The fixed way is you take out a certain, let's say you take out originally 4%, and then every year after that, you take out that same 4% plus, uh, plus uh, inflation. The variable means that each year... You take out 5% of whatever's there to take out. If the market has gone out, gone up, then you can take out more. If the market goes down, you take out less. You totally ignore inflation. 
and the variable payouts are built for people who have saved more than they need. Now, the reason I cannot, well, first of all, we have not done those tables because we're not very comfortable encouraging people to take out 7, 8, 9%. But how could you? How could you take out that much? Well, for this, just for the sake of discussion, let's say you're 70 years old. Let's say that you've way oversaved. You have three times as much money in there uh, as you need in order to last your lifetime. And uh, so to the extent that you take out more to enjoy, you know, it's really going to mean you leave less for your kids. In fact, if you take out enough, you can leave nothing for your kids if that's the, if that's the goal. But remember how the variable strategy works. You're going to take out, my wife and I take out 5% the first week of each year, whatever the value of the portfolio is. And basically, it then gives you that amount to live on for a year. And it also, by the way, in our case, we didn't start doing this until we had twice as much money as we as we needed. And so we could always cut back. So could we take out 6%? Sure. We could take out 6%. We could take out 7%. But we'd have to, at some point, be ready to, to cut back before we put the, the principal at so much risk that would it, it would keep us from having the bare bones minimum that we take, need to take out. So let me suggest something to you, Paul. I think... You ought to work with an advisor for probably one year. Have or or you hire an hourly advisor for two hundred bucks an hour to look at your your own plan should you decide to take out more than six percent. I I think you want to have a professional look at it if you're going to be that aggressive. Speaking of uh, hiring an advisor, I get an email from Jim. He says, I've been trying to get a fee-based financial planner to look over my overall financial situation and retirement situation and make any suggestions because he is not trying to sell me anything for a commission. The fee-based financial planner is providing a service for his time. Can you recommend a good fee-based financial planner? Well, I, I probably could if I had the time to talk to Jim one by one, but I, but I don't, unfortunately. What I can say is that Garrett Planning Network, G-A-R-R-E-T-T, Planning Network, is an organization, national organization, uh, of hourly advisors. Now, some of them also will work for a percentage of the assets under management, but they are obligated, as I understand it, if they're part of this Garrett network, they are obligated to also offer hourly work. I have never, that I can remember, had somebody go to a Garrett planner and call me back and say, that person was an idiot. I've always gotten really good reviews. So give that a try. Um, let's see here. 
What do we got from uh, from Faye? Uh, oh, <laughs> Faye asks, do you plan to remain remain active as long as John Bogle? You know something? That would be my goal. He is a hero of mine. And if I could work until I'm 88 years old, and please don't anybody pass this podcast along to my wife. She still has hopes that one of these days I'll see the light and and throw in the towel and retire. The fact is, she knows I love doing this. Uh, it is it is a blessing uh, that I'm able to pass along some information that will help, and I'd like to believe that uh, the best is yet to come. Uh, here's a, uh, a question from Bob. Uh, Bob asks, can you tell me what the underlying investments are for the various stock and fixed income mixes? Are they indexes? Which ones and what proportion or actively managed funds? Same question. Uh, thank you. And uh, uh, I notice here that Bob is actually a registered representative, which is, uh, uh, w- which is great to know that I'm helping people uh, who are eyeball to eyeball with investors. Uh, my recommendations at Vanguard, T. Roll Price, Fidelity, uh, and uh, Schwab and TD Ameritrade uh, are on our uh, website. And then we have some ETFs that we call best in class recommendations. Um, and so uh, those are at this point the recommendations. And, the, and we even show percentages uh, at paulmerriman.com. Just look under recommendations and you'll find the mutual funds and the ETFs. Now, as I noted early uh, in this uh, in this podcast, uh, I'm behind on a couple of those. So uh, hopefully I'll get all caught up here by the uh, end of July. If, if Maybe it'll be the end of August. But um, I, the project at, at Western that I'm going to be uh, taping the uh, the videos for first-time investors will be done the last week of July, so I should hopefully have a lot of time after that. So I, I oh, one more, one more here. Uh, this is about Dalbar versus Morningstar. Uh, Roger, uh, thanks for your uh, your question uh, about my thoughts on Wade Fowles' warning advisory regarding Dalbar's math. Uh, Roger says, I know you're a big fan of Dalbar and have been using them for many years, so your opinion, based on the enormous wealth of experience you have, will be appreciated. Thanks for all you do. Uh, Now let me talk about this uh, Dalbar report. And yes, it has come under uh, a lot of criticism over the years. What Dalbar has done, and I don't know how they how they calculate uh, uh, every number that they uh, that they that they look at, but they look at mutual fund cash flows on a monthly basis. And in theory, what they're doing is they're looking at all the money coming into a fund and out of a fund like there is only one shareholder. And so over time, 
um, that result of one shareholder representing all shareholders, it would theoretically show the return that that one shareholder got, which would in essence represent the return of the average shareholder. Now, there are a lot of problems with this. Uh, it has to do uh, with the, whether the market is rising or falling. It has to do uh, with the, the problem of lots of money flowing in at tops of markets and nobody putting money in at bottoms of markets. By the way, somebody's putting money in because for every, every seller, there's a buyer. But... Uh, there are people who say that it is not does not properly reflect what's happened to investors because the bottom line is the, the Dalbar studies show that investors make a lot a lot less than what the mutual funds say because investors tend to invest heavily when markets are high and either sell or, or uh, uh, not add money when markets are low. So I have never taken the position that Dalbar is all wrong because not only has Dalbar done these kinds of studies, but so has Morningstar. And uh, the Morningstar results, in some cases, are similar and in other cases, uh, less draconian, uh, not as radical. But here's the study that I've done over the years, and it is purely 100% anecdotal. I talk to people, I exchange emails with people, I find lots of people who got out of the market in 2008 and uh, that uh, uh, are, are getting a hold of me asking how they can get back in the market here in um, 2017. Now, what we don't know is we don't know what they did with all that money in between. They have made, they may have uh, purchased lottery tickets and won the lottery. They may also have put that money in cash. I have no way to track, and I don't make any attempt to find that out because, because I'm too busy to do that. But I do know a lot of people who miss major uh, uh, major runs in the market um, because they're afraid. And I've talked about them in the past. That the stories are anything from from people who did not want to invest in the market because. Clinton was the president, and they didn't want to be in the market when Clinton was the president, and Obama was the president, and then Trump was the president. I mean, there are all these reasons that people stay out of the market. The market is overpriced. Remember, we went through the 90s, the, the decade of the 90s, and I, I we never had a, a bear market. Uh, we hardly had a 10% pullback in the market, and, and so... To the extent that somebody was sitting there waiting for a sell-off to get in, they missed the market. They never even got in the market. The industry has no idea to figure out how those people did. 
All I know is there are a lot of people that don't understand how investing works, who don't understand the risk, who are easily motivated to do bad things because it is in the good, in the best interest of the people who motivate them to do bad things uh, in order for them to make a living. And then the the first-timer just gets taken advantage of. And think of all the people who were were talked into doing things with their money because there was a commission involved that was totally the wrong thing for them to do. And, and it's not I'm not beating up on commission salespeople here. I'm not beating up on the amateur investor who just doesn't know what they're doing. But I can tell you this that even if Dalbar's uh, computations aren't perfect, I know they represent the results of a lot of investors. And as I said before, there is no way to track uh, what happened to the money after people take the money out of the market. So, do I believe, is there evidence, legitimate evidence, that there's a way that it works and that I should be encouraging people to do that. I remember several months ago I did an article, and I'm sure I did a podcast, about the implications of dollar cost averaging into Vanguard target date portfolios or funds. And the returns, according to Morningstar, who track investor returns as well as mutual fund returns showed that the investors who were using target date funds and dollar cost averaging in got a better rate of return than the funds. And I also looked at at, uh, Fidelity and I saw that Fidelity investors investing in target date funds, not only were the Fidelity funds less productive for getting the investor returns than Vanguard, the investors did worse than than the Fidelity funds themselves. So there's something about these numbers that tell us stories of what is happening to some group of investors, and I suspect that the people who need the most help are first-time investors, which is why so much of my work is trying to get uh, the person who's just starting a 401k or just starting an IRA to try to get them to do the right thing, because if we can keep them from making those early mistakes, oh, what a difference it can make in the long term. So there you go. I've got more questions to answer, but I can't. I, I can't do it to you. <laughs> so thank you for listening, uh, and uh, I hope, so as so many of you are doing, that you'll continue to suggest people uh, uh, stay on top of the educational work that we're that we're putting out, and uh, glad to help to whatever extent I can. All the best. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.